we've always been a tax first and then basically right up at our yeah. firm. Like, you know, we like to say we do bookkeeping and accounting, but it's really just right up for the tax return, cash basis accounting. I, I don't like to say cash because I don't know what it means. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to play, play that acronym. Cash yeah, is I more guess. sexy than bookkeeping. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. May I have your attention, please? Welcome to Accounting High. It's freshman year at a brand new school. Here, we have no rules in place as we're on a mission to set our own traditions. So hang tight and learn with us as we grow. At Accounting High, you can expect to gain knowledge in a completely different way than what you may be used to with some fun and oftentimes colorful conversations. Whether you loved high school or you hated it, here's your chance to be a part of an unforgettable experience redone. While you're here, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening to us right now so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And feel free to leave us a five-star review letting us know how the school year is treating you. In addition, share this episode on social media tagging us at Accounting High. So sit back, relax, and open your mind because class is in session. I repeat. May I have your attention, please? This is another public service announcement brought to you in part by Accounting High. The views and events expressed here are of the next generation of accounting and tech professionals leading this space. The events and suggestions are not to be taken lightly. Children should not partake in the listening of this podcast. Anything else? Yeah. So without further ado, introducing the star. Scott Scarano. We're going to have a problem here. Class is in session. We got a great guest today. We've got Dan Luthy of Ignite Spot, and I've been excited about this episode. Dan, let me just start by saying I got to know you this year, and you're one of the most kind, genuine, and humble people I have met. Oh. In my travels, you're, and when I say genuine, I mean that, like, uh, you're very thoughtful and intentional about what you say, and you come across as very, like, welcoming I, from the moment I met you, so oh, I, appreciate I just want to start out with that, like, yeah. it's, it's a rarity in this, in this day and age to meet people like that, so. Oh, thank go. you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, so what's up? I will have to say, I, I love your intro. Are you like, like it? I love it. I dig the intro. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for like the parental advisory portion to come across it. Like, it was, <laughs> it, it was in there and I kind of took that out. I took a little bit of that. I'm trying to clean up my act, man. Yeah. To... No, it's the, uh, it, the, the music, the tone, the flow of it reminds me of, uh, so I grew up in Utah and there's a, there's a, a radio station that's called, um, in the, they have a morning show that's called radio from hell. And that's the whole context of like that whole flow and jive of it. And that's one of the big things that they have this, this, like the, you know, the views of this podcast are not, you know, of this radio station are not subject to the match, like the parent company. It's really, it's awesome. So it's the same flow. So it's great. So if I do ever have a parent company, I'm already ready for it. I'm already like, <laughs> definitely. I got a leg up there. Definitely. Definitely. So radio from hell, that's ironic because yeah. it's in Utah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, totally. They, uh, they totally play off the, uh, the contradictory Utah lifestyle. Juxtaposition. Of they, exactly. they place themselves strategically. I always like Very to say, so. this has come up uh, often, but it's, I'm always like, you know, the, the haven of the States is Utah and the hell of the States is Vegas and y'all are pretty close to each other. So it's, like, it's fitting. <laughs> Five and a half hour drive. Yep. A hundred percent. One hour. I wouldn't flight. say Vegas is hell, but it's sin city, right? Sin that's, city. That's what yeah. they say. Yeah. Don't very much so. Mm -hmm. very much so. So, uh, so let's, uh, let's kind of get started with, tell me about yourself at a young age. You can start high school since this is accounting high. You can start wherever. Oh man. Oh man. So I, I went to, went to high school in Salt Lake grew up there and spent my whole life there. I had no intentions on when I was going to high school of like doing anything in a professional atmosphere for work after it was, I had woodshop classes throughout my entire high school career, which I absolutely loved. My brother got me into it. And so he and I had this like 
plan that we were going to go build a cabinet shop together or do something in that space. And I fell in love with it and I've been in love with it ever since. I do it on the side still now, but did you build your doors behind you? I did build my doors behind me. Yeah. That Dope. was uh, one, one late night during, during COVID where it just was, I needed a break from everything. So how do you define a late night? It started at one and ended okay. at, uh, at six in the morning, I okay. think is about how long right. that is. A, that is a late night. So, um, but I would agree. yeah. But was it just like the inspiration, like the sheer, like, I got to do this now because I'm not, I, I can't do it tomorrow. Uh, it was, it was, I have to be a, like I, during COVID COVID was crazy for us. So it was like, I mean, I, I was, go I also decided to do a master's program at the same time. So dealing with PPP, going through all that we were doing with dealing with growth. Um, I was working and going to school seven days a week and working like 12 to 18 hour days every single day with school and homework and, and, and work. And so it was just kind of one of those things of like, I need a break from life and I need to do something that kind of takes me back to who I am at the core, which is that, that part of me from when I was in high school. Yeah. And, um, I'll always love the smell of sawdust or working on cars. Like that's kind of like, uh, you know, nostalgic to me. Like it brings me back to my youth. And so I, uh, I just took a break and went out in the garage and put some headphones on and my whole family was sleeping. And I, I woke up my wife in the morning and I was like, did, did you hear the saw or anything that she goes, no, no, no. She goes, you were, you were in your zone and everything was good. The kids slept well. So, but yeah, no, it was, it was a nice break, but that's so dope. Yeah. yeah go back to your core and yeah. high school can creating things. Oh yeah. That, uh, yeah. that was, it was huge. I had to like, and I think that's a part like that I loved about that part of my life when I was in, in high school was it just felt me like, and yeah. I think that's part of the reason why, like, I never thought of doing anything else um, until, uh, until I got older. It was probably, I think 25 was when I finally graduated from college with my undergraduate and uh, 26 almost, I think. And that's when accounting kind of kicked into me, you know, kicked into that point for me. And I kind of went a different direction than, than what I planned, but. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I think in most cases on this show, at least nobody really set out to be an accountant <laughs> except me. And I even lost my way there a little bit. And now I'm, I'm done. I don't, I'm not even an accountant anymore. I'm just a, I'm just a wannabe rapper and a podcaster. <laughs> no, I used to got it at your core roots. It's still there. You understand the concepts and the framework of all of that stuff. So yeah, it doesn't it, ever leave you though. It yeah. was born with it. Like yeah. I, I had no choice. So well, very much so. So you, how old are you now? 38 38 all right yeah we're the same yeah. age i knew that but i don't think our listeners knew that so yeah. you've got a, big, a pretty big family too tell, family. Me, tell me about yep. your family four kids four kids um so my wife my wife and i got married pretty relatively pretty young i uh i we got married when we were about almost 23 years old and then uh, a like year mm -hmm. year later we had our first kid um which was awesome he's 14 years old now just phenomenal love love him to death. He's a great kid. Um, then I got an 11 year old. So came shortly after. So, um, and then my wife and I both, my, I grew up in a family where my mother and all of her brothers and sisters were adopted. And so it was something that was really deep and personal to me. And my wife grew up in a family with people that were adopted as well. And we had an opportunity to adopt our third kid shortly after my, my second son was born. So our two or nine months apart though. So it feels like we got that almost Irish twins set up in our house, but uh, she turns 11 later this year. So yeah. kind of exciting for that. But, uh, and then I got a six year old. Dope. Dope. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know one was adopted. That's uh that's interesting too, because it's not like you're infertile or anything like no. you still are having, you could still probably have more kids. I'm sure. <laughs> no, we, we took care of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. 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 So that's, and that's also interesting yeah. too, because like, I think, there were a little bit of tells, right? Like I just found out you were Mormon too. Like yep. um, you just don't seem, you don't come across as, I think this is the case with all Mormons I know. Never high and mighty. It's not the same type of religious sense that I get in the Bible Belt where I live. Like people that are religious here, the Southern Baptists are, let's just say righteous. And, yeah. and the way, I don't know, I don't know the right word to say, but they have that moral superiority over everybody. And if you're not with them, you're against them. And then it's almost like 
to me, it's a turnoff. It, it always has yeah. been in my days. But I've gotten to know a lot more Mormons, especially since doing this podcast, because that's like an accountant epicenter. It's almost <laughs> like a Mecca. I'm not going to use Mecca. Yeah, but <laughs> there is, right? And I mean, I, I don't know if there's, do you have any theories on that? On why? Like, what, what what's going on here? Uh, I think, I mean, for me, I mean, I think part of it is, is just the, the context of the, the desire to help. I mean, ever since I was a kid, like that was always something that we, we just had as a part of our core functionality. I mean, I had two single ladies that lived across the street from me, like the moment it snowed, like we shoveled their walk before anything else. Like, and it was just about helping, about collaborating, about supporting people. I mean, and so that's kind of carried with me throughout the rest of my life to where it's like, no matter what situation people are in, um, just be there to, to support and strengthen and help where you can. And they may not have the same views or opinions or thoughts as you, but that's totally okay. Like there's no need for everybody to be identical to that process. And so um, I think that's just similar. I think that's, I think that's part of our core beliefs that we've always had, you know, just kind of as a part of our, you know, faith in some context. And sure, we have people who are, you know, a little bit preachy, a little bit high and mighty in certain aspects as well. I think that comes with everything, but, uh, but that core belief internally is make sure that everybody else is, you know, is having a good space too. Like you shouldn't be the only person that, you know, has everything, try to support, try to lift. So I'm going to challenge that then. How does that, what does that have to do with accounting? Like the similarities here, because accounting, I guess that's, that describes running a business because most businesses and most business owners are out to help, whether it's, you know, a restaurant, you know, or any type of business. So how do we bring this contextualized into it? Yeah, I, I think the thing that brought me the most to, and I'll say this, I mean, I've, I've been with the firm that I'm with now for, for 12 years. It's, this is where I started while I was doing my undergrad. The vision was always about helping to support small businesses to have better systems, better operations, better flow, so they can have better financial accuracy. And, and it was focused on small business. And that was something that like I'd worked for construction companies all up to that point in time, I'd worked for small businesses up to the point in time. And I knew that, you know, anytime I asked for a raise, it was like, well, cash flow is tight. You know, I, anytime I go through, you know, any position of, Hey, we need some new equipment. Well, cash flow is tight. And so that whole concept of tying it together and like producing something for someone so they can make better business decisions was like, Oh my gosh, like this is, that's deeply valuable. Oh, I can sell this product, this value of time, and I can actually make your life better and help you to be able to grow into something more like that just resonated with me. And I think that's the same for a lot of accountants just as a whole, like sure we all love the ticking and tying of things, but I think at the end of the day, like financial clarity and financial representation is a huge thing for people to make better decisions, like, and to become better overall. You said sell this product and value of time. I don't know if that was a slip or anything. (laughs) A little bit of a slip. No, um, you know, I, I think what we do is a product. Our time is product, right? It like is. as accountants, it's Our not knowledge is the product. Yeah. We don't sell widgets. I mean, we're no different than in some cases than attorneys in this that concept, right? Like your skill set, your knowledge, your education that you've gained from all your, you know, whatever over the years is what helps you to be better. It's what helps you to be more proficient. It was it helps you to be able to charge a higher rate than the next person because of the value that you bring. But it's still based off time because you're human, right? I mean, you're not selling a widget, you're selling you. And so whether you sell it at $300 an hour or $300 a minute, it's still time. There's still some time concept that goes into it. I have a lot of PTSD and the T stands for time. Um, like I can't even, I don't even like talking about it because I don't ever, I, I always agree with whoever I'm talking to. I agree with you. Everything you're saying makes sense to me put Ron Baker on here and I'm going to agree with everything he says too. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I think that's the thing though, too, about, and, and this is my take on, on Ron Baker's philosophy, because I love his, his take on it. It's about, I think his principally starts, at least for me is the value that you bring within the time you spend. Um, because materially people still get paid by the hour. Even if you're on salary, it breaks down to an hourly rate. Right. And so it's, but it's really gets to that point of what can you bring? What can you provide? What can you create within a certain framework that makes sense financially for both the people who's buying and the people who's selling, but it really boils down to that. Like you have to determine that you have to make that 
that accreditation to what's going on with it to be able to make it worthwhile. Because if not, if you, I mean, and I'm all for, we do, we do full billing contracts for our clients, standard rate rights, you know, everything's nice and consistent, but you still have to measure it against your investment, whether it's mm -hmm. a software tool, whether it's your staff, whatever it is, like the investment is time because that's what accountants do. I think that answer satisfies my, me at least. I don't know if it would satisfy Ackerman, but I, I, will, I will bring this up too. Ackerman always preaches that he, they don't track time, they don't do time or anything, yet they do. It's just in days, not in hours. So he gets all high and mighty on here, but he's really <laughs> tracking the days it takes to do a return and using that as their baseline of capacity and planning. And I think that's a, that's the, a whole other conversation too, is, is using time as a measurement to forecast capacity. Well, um, I, I agree with that completely, but I also think it's the, the reference of what you associate with that, right? Like, for our firm, we track time, but it's not like, oh my gosh, you went over the budget that we assigned to this client. It's, hey, client generates X. This is what our, our goal for rates are for our organization. Why was it not there? What happened? Mm -hmm. Is it something we did? Is it something that changed in the client's relationship? Is there something conceptually happening here that we need to be more observant with? Is the client asking for more? than what our contract was originally allotted for from a, from a value proposition standpoint. But it still associates to what people put in. And sometimes it's, our team was inefficient. We didn't use this app correctly. We didn't associate this process and gathering data as we went through. We made a major mistake. We had to go back this month and recorrect three months worth of payroll entries. Like, I mean, all of it, it still associates to it, but I think it's just the tone that you associate with it and the reference that comes off of it. And But it's still a good benchmark. It still gives good context for people. So I like how you brought up that it could be our fault. Whatever whatever situation you were just bringing up now, it was like, we could have messed up this, this, and this. Like, I think that's a very important skill set for companies is to recognize, like, just not pointing the finger like, hey, oh, yeah. you know, and that's again, I'm like kind of context shifting too, or, or switching gears, but owning your, your response, your responsibilities as a business setting expectations and knowing, you know, who like, I don't think the client's ever at fault in anything that we do. I think I see a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blaming around town, mostly on Twitter, you know, mostly it's Twitter where it's like client bashing and client blaming I don't ever think the client's at fault in a lot of situations because you don't even have to take the client on in the first place if they're really bad. Yeah. And then when you do take them on, it's you know you have a consistent uh, consistency among the the better firms, or at least I don't want to compare and say better, but the firms that never have problems with clients versus firms that are always complaining about something. You got any thoughts on that? Like, how are your clients? <laughs> yeah. I you definitely have to choose the clients you work with. I mean, if you're if you're just looking for revenue numbers and trying to support people and go through it, it's it's no different than hiring, right? Like the whole process of bringing on a client is no different than the type of people that you choose to work for you or work with. If you don't spend time and you rush into a hire, usually you get a bad person. They usually turn over quickly. They usually aren't someone who's going to stick around and bring value to the organization. But when you invest into the process, when you dive into it and you understand what's going on, you bring in better quality people. I think the same thing goes for clients. Like you have to, if you choose to, to rush through the contract, if you choose not to vet certain aspects of the relationship, and I'm not even talking about deep dives into to financials or anything like that. Like you've got to make sure that there's someone who's interested in the product you sell not just accounting, not just bank reconciliations, mm -hmm. but interested in the whole package and product you sell. And if they're only partially vested into it, they're going to be a problem for you. But if they're fully vested, they're going to work with you to, to achieve those needs. And whether there's a price change or whether there's a, a personnel change or whether there's a process change, they're going to understand because you're on the same rhythm of what needs to be done. But I, but I agree with your statement too about, you know, about, the judgment of clients being good or bad from that perspective. And, and I actually really loved uh, something that Jason Bloomer preaches and that's scope seep and scope creep. And usually we only talk about scope creep 
you know, that's clients pushing things into your space and you allowing it to happen. But that scope seep side of it is us as a firm choosing for things to to happen or to be added and to to get out of control. And and I think those are the parts that that as a as a manager or as a even just an accountant working on a client, you gotta you gotta measure both and weigh the value of each piece before you commit to doing anything, uncommit especially doing it long term and if it's the right client or not in that same process. Is it bloomer or bloomer? I've been saying it wrong. I don't know. I always call him bloomer. Is it, it might I'll, be bloomer. Uh, I'll ask him. I'm gonna yeah. be at Thrival this year. Are you going? I'm not. I'm I'm traveling traveling for with family this month. So yeah, well, by the time this is released, Thrival's over. So we're we're, <laughs> we're contexting it for next year yeah. then I guess. But I went last so, year and it was awesome. Did you? That was my okay, big takeaway cool. that I took away from it last year. It was just that ideology that we have is in working with clients in the context that we we frame it with. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I heard him, you know, he, he came to carbon X and he did a little thing there and that was it. Like he was talking about, and I just love the, uh, the rhyme, you know, yeah. seep and creep. And it's just, uh, <laughs> definitely. So, so let's, um, let's go to ignite spot, right? 12 years. And tell me, just frame the scenario here. Tell me what you want to share top line employee head count. How much, uh, I guess the structure, cause I know that you're, you're not the owner. Are, are you, so I'm give partner. us the partner. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but not a hundred percent. Like, so give us that and then take home for partners if you care to share. Yeah. So I've been with the firm for 12 years. The firm has been around for 14. Two of us became partners this year. So CFO and COO, so me and my, one of my others became a full partners this year. Each of us have 15%. So the main partner, um, who's been around since the beginning and has 70% of it. Um, organization, we're just over uh, about 3.2 mil in annual revenue is where we're at firm-wise um, with just over 20 employees. And take-home take home is mid-six figures. Nothing super crazy on that that space of things. Cool. So go, go back again. How long before you guys became um, equity so we were we were all together uh so eddie was the original founder he had it for 14 mm -hmm. full you know full 14 years up through june of this year no yeah june of this year um i'd been with 12 so january is when and ryan had been with eddie working on side stuff since day one so okay. um but almost uh almost 11 years 11 okay. and a half years before we became partners so that's really interesting to me because that's i'm about to do that with two of my guys, maybe, maybe even more, but, and we're going to structure it just like that, like CEO, COO, and not necessarily C CFO. We call them CSS, <laughs> client success specialist. Um, oh, yeah. And I haven't really worked out percentages or anything, and I haven't even figured out how we're going to handle the equity situation. So let's talk about that. That's probably a good topic. How did you guys structure the purchase or it, was it a purchase? Give me, give me, Lay that out for me. With yeah, ours was ours was based off of the investment that the the two of us had put in over the over the twelve years, and so it was initially just an equity, an equity, and an equity gift. I don't know how you classify it in legal terms or whatever it is, but there's phases to it. So there was an initial endowment of of equity for the two of us for our years of service and time and investment into the organization with with a period rate of time that we had to go through before it was, I think, come January, it's fully vested in that context as well. But then we also have some benchmarks for increasing that. So we've got some financial benchmarks that we have internally that if we want to increase our equity beyond what we have up to, I think it's 24.5% each or 24% each between Ryan and I, we've got to meet certain criteria as a company to be able to achieve that, which, which I think is really fair. It, it created some, some expectations for us of, of growth. And it wasn't just a sacrifice from, from Eddie to give up everything from that perspective as well. But I think also for him compared to, to others, it was, he knew what investment we had both put in up through that period of time and what he'd reaped the benefit from, you know, through that whole space as well. And so it allowed, it allowed us to be able to at least him to feel palatable about the percentage that was, was provided to begin with. That's so crazy. I was just talking about that scenario this morning, like less than an hour ago about doing some form of like growth milestones or benchmarks as part of ways to just like to trigger different options or different, you know, portions. 
Uh, I think it, I think provides more expectation for people too, right? I mean, well, sure. it creates accountability too. Yeah. Like, it, oh, very much you so. know, on the other side of this, then all of a sudden it's like it, it, the mindset absolutely shifts. They have a, an entire different outlook on everything, all the goings on. Like they, it's more responsibility. I think it could spark more, more ideas and more, not just accountability, but initiative too to make yeah. things happen rather than just wait for things to happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think that's the one thing that's been nice about the three of us is we've always had some sort of deep commitment to the organization to begin with of sacrifice of time or commitment or things. But I, I agree with you. I mean, it's still changed. I think for all of us, when everything you know happened in January of this year, it really shifted certain concepts regarding how much do we spend on this? Are we okay? And I, I mean, I'll be honest, like I absolutely love app applications and I'm willing to test everything. And so that was kind of one of the big parts for me this year as I was going through it, I was like, oh my gosh, like my budget for applications is like asinine. So yeah. like, it was like, geez, like if I'm able to cut down some of this, this cost and we're able to, to reorganize and restructure our system for better operational flow, can we operate at better margins? Can we provide a better life for our team? Can we provide, you know, different functionalities for ourselves? Like, and we've been on a 10 month, three, nine month journey so far, kind of rearranging some things. We've gotten rid of a handful of apps and people are, I feel like are creating better, better work life synergy, you know, and what they need and what they're trying to create for themselves within our team. So it's, it's been a good, good mindset change for me and it's helped our team in the whole process. Work life synergy. So, Let's talk apps. What do you guys use? Give me your give me your stack. I know you got the the zero logo behind you, and you and I've talked about this several times. I'm I'm green, have been from day one. So we're CoreCrete QBO, probably about 300 clients we serve, or 250 300 clients we serve. Most probably 95 percent are in QBO. The rest are in desktop. We're Bill Bill.com love you know big time Bill.com lovers and committed to that process. We love the way the system works. We love the, the process flow that goes along with it. Huge on the Divi side as well. Love that the acquisition is going smoothly and then kind of maneuver of, of the shifting of products together. Payroll wise, we've been big fans of Gusto for a really long time. Feel like they've done a really good job for a core group of our clients. Big fans of ADP as well. I feel like there's certain needs for clients that, that mesh, you know, mesh with that space. Um, and then Rippling's becoming a new you know, kind of a relatively uh, deeper, new relationship for us as a, an organization that we have a lot of love and creativity with as well. So those are kind of some of the main core ones, but reporting why, I mean, I would say this too, though. I mean, yeah, data gathering, really big fans of Dext and the process that goes along with that. Team uses it for both Dex Commerce and Dex Prepare, A2X for all of those kind of clients that we work with things on. Rewind is a big, where every single one of our clients that joins us uses Rewind. So big, big fan of that process overall too. But yeah, those are kind of probably the same core ones. Oh, and, and throwing in there, Avalara. That's, that's the whole process we use for our entire sales tax development within our firm. Your Ignite spot, do you use Ignition? We do not. Ooh, what do you use to, for invoicing? So we, we actually do our invoicing out of QuickBooks. Okay. So we as a firm use QuickBooks Advanced and we do all our invoicing out of that. So we've used a lot of different stuff in the past but it just created a little more simplicity for our, our customers with that process. So you guys um, don't do tax? We do we do tax, but we bill on flat rate billing. So it's whatever the contract is, as soon as the return's finished, we just send out an invoice and they pay. So What do you use for tax? Uh, Drake. Drake. Ah. See, I'm a Kanye fan. So <laughs> I, always, I always do that. Every time somebody mentions Drake, I... I bring up Kanye. I want. I want to get Kanye's cloud tax Maybe we can get Canopy or to to switch their name over to that, so it's still synergy in the process. Because I know they're trying to push for a bigger system too. So. Oh really? Wait. What what is Canopy trying to do? I didn't. I think a year or so ago, weren't they focusing on trying to build even in the tax project into the whole structure into their space as well oh man everybody's trying to build cloud tax i just don't understand why it is taking so long like even thompson reuters has been touting onvio like their cloud product and it's just smoke and mirrors it's like um nothing u.s tax law is tough 
I mean, it is, isn't it? <laughs> oh gosh, like I mean, I don't, I don't do tax at all personally. Ryan, our, our, uh, my, one of my partners, he does all of that on our side. He's managed our CFO and our tax practice, and um, I, I can't even, can't even fathom how difficult it is to go through all the changes and development. I mean, I do our sales tax on our side, and that has enough changes for me. And it's only one, one single focus. It's not multi, multi-channeled. So it's, but yeah, no, tax is a mess. But you do need people to specialize in one or the other, and I think that's something that I've been struggling with because I've always we've always been a tax first and then basically write up at our yeah. firm. Like you know, we like to say we do bookkeeping and accounting, but it's really just write up for the tax return, cash basis accounting, and it's always compliance first. To split that out and actually look at it from a different angle, I think would require somebody that's just solely focused on the accounting. I, I don't like to say CAS because I don't know what it means. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to play, play that acronym. But yeah, I mean like CAS is more sexy than bookkeeping. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's well, of course. And write up, oof, don't, don't, yeah. don't go there. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. We, we were bookkeeping first. That was our core process and, and product. I mean, that's really what we've been from, from day one. And so I think that helped us in some of that concept too. I mean, our tax practice isn't big, never really has, but um, bookkeeping first, focusing on just the data and getting everything in and working through it to move into fractional controller and CFO services has been really our focus change over the last couple of years. Tell me about that, um, getting into tax. We, you know, honestly, the funny thing is, is, and, and it'll probably be by the time you release this, it'll it'd be completely done, but <laughs> we're, uh, we're actually shelling off and pushing off our tax practice. We're going to, we're going to partner with a firm and have them do work with us and work with our clients specifically for it. Because to your point, I mean, it, it requires a lot to own and manage tax and that, and to maintain a strong enough tax practice for a, a long period of time. And it's just not a, it's not the focus of our, our product. It's not the focus of our energy. And we, we added it to try to be more encompassing and more, you know, holistic for our clients, but it's, it's just never really met that need or, or commitment for, for our firm. And it's never really created enough value add because half our clients use other people. So why kind of force it all into one environment if we can provide it to a firm that does a way better job than we can and yeah. give the time yeah. commitment to the clients the right way. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. We've always, uh, we've always looked at it as like the books as part of the tax return anyway. So we have to do that. Like in order yeah. to do good taxes, we got to at least have some kind of control over what's going into the books. So it's easier to do the return and everything's good. So I think like in certain situations, like, and I'll bring up Ackerman again too. He hates CAS and like doing that type of stuff, but they are really big on tax. They even want to focus more on the individual tax. They think that's being ignored in the market. Um, oh, it is, 100%. And when you lead with tax, like you have an entirely different mindset about the books and you're looking at the books to feed into the end game of the books is for the tax return. Yep. In a lot of cases, I, I've, I have seen people that lead with bookkeeping tend to get more into fractional CFO, advisory we'll we'll get there and other things that and they they tend to do things a lot differently and they use more apps yeah. they're using the dex the divi the bill.com you know nicole she's you know, she doesn't do any tax and she's always been you know she complains about bill.com a lot but always been like using those types of tools getting into you know doing a lot for the client basically being the client's back office yeah and adding more value on the book side, but with tax, you just can't like it's, it's, that's almost, that is the full-time job is to keep up with that. And there's not as much time to focus on growing out a better cash practice. So I think that's something to just keep in mind too, for traditional tax firms versus somebody that started out with bookkeeping, um, is to know what you're good at, what's your core product, right? Oh Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's part of the reason why also too, like we're seeing these bigger shifts in CPA firms to like the large CPA firms to split their firms to certain extents. Like E&Y announced this, you know, this year we had RSM do the exact same thing. Um, no, not RSM. We had uh, Eisner Amper do the exact same thing. I mean, they're 
investing into that direction, but they're bringing whole brand new teams in or firms that have already done it for a long period of time to be complementary to it. They're not trying to, to statically grow in this, you know, onesie twosie employee or client environment. They're saying, no, we have a need. We're going to attack it with this large, you know, advantage or large focus to be able to get there. And I think that's to your point, there's so much that has to be done on the tax side. I mean, if you're a firm who's really even keeping up on the quarterlies and making sure that everything is compliant from that perspective, that requires so much attention, so much understanding of what's happening in their world to be able to do it. Like it's, I think a lot of times the, the bookkeeping and cash space doesn't truly understand the depths of due dates and timelines that you guys deal with because ours is a lot more adjustable. Mm-hmm. You know, like, especially when you have, you outsource payroll, like you're not dealing with due dates. You get a notice. Sure. You shell it off to the client and, you know, or off to your payroll company and say, fix it. But mm-hmm. you don't have to know the ins and outs of every single little thing. Sales tax is the first part that even gets us close to it, but it's not true. Like in-depth strategic planning or, or context that goes into it. So, I mean, there's definitely value in both spaces. It's just a very different way to approach connecting and, providing value for clients. Tell me what fractional CFO means. Part-time. So not full-time, not part-time or not, uh, not all day, just someone who's there for a short period of time based off of, you know, the amount of time that they can give to them. Time, 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 time. Okay. So then what does a CFO do? For your so, for your clients, when you're offering this service, tell me, productize it for me. Tell me, tell me yeah, what you're selling. We do a couple of different things. So, I mean, Cash flow forecasting is a big part of it. That's usually one of the first gateway pieces that our clients get into. And we don't just do basic cash flow forecasting. We do scenario analysis with it as well so that it's specific to the client and and require you know meets their requirements and their needs objectively. So we're diving into goals and objectives and what their five-year plan is and you know do they have an exit strategy or do they want to grow and maintain do they have you know they're looking for hiring people you know all that kind of stuff like that ties into it's not just cash flow we we really look at this you know scenario analysis as well we do some mergers and acquisition functions within our our fractional cfo services as well um strategic budgets and planning for for different types of organizations as well we do compensation structures that go along for teams and developments from that standpoint different revenue strategies as well i mean it's we really are hands-on when it comes to that space is up to what the clients are looking for but again rates associate based off of what types of services you're looking for and how much we're you're committing to it so so services based on rates based on services is it a time rate because these, these are all like you know not, all of the services you mentioned here they could be productized and they could there there are ways to turn that into a recurring type model if you're doing planning and revisiting and and all that have you done that so ours are re, ours are reoccurring so all of our cfo contracts are reoccurring monthly service fees when we first meet with the client we set expectations of what their goals are over the next three to six 12 18 months and we'll build a strategy for them in the same time with it on what we're going to provide to them so if you're a semi-monthly client or you're a monthly cfo call great over the next three months it's going to take us this much time to build this out for you to connect, you know, to, or to provide this product to you because of the 12 different criteria that you need for your, you know, cash flow forecast or whatever it is. But that's, that's a part of what they do is they, they discuss that out with the client and create a full strategic plan on how to deliver that to them. And, and yeah, it's built, some of it's built off time, but it's also built off the deliverable that goes along with it as well. And what the intent of that, that focus is. Yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring time up again. I'm just, no, I'm just I keep I, saying I, I like I like I like where you're going with this. I like what you guys are doing too, because it's setting expectations, right? And at the beginning, but also the client sees that roadmap, or they're you're creating the roadmap with them on other services that you can offer, after you know, as as a as part of your complete solution. Yeah. Right. Based on their needs. So tell me a little bit about sales at the firm. How does that, who's meeting with the client here? How does that, how's that structured? Yeah. Um, so it depends on kind of what the product is holistically. Um, if our clients are looking to just the initial people are looking for, um, 
the just book core bookkeeping practice and what they're doing from that standpoint. Um, they'll meet with Eddie. He manages, uh, he's our, our lead partner. He manages all of our sales and marketing for our firm. Um, he goes through all of that with them. Um, currently right now we're doing some analysis into the files, QuickBooks files or into their business before we give them quoting and kind of best assess on what plans and actions we can do to help them from the, you know, from the data entry side and, and optimization there, um, which I'll get involved in that um, in kind of the review and give my context and my opinion off of it. Uh, but if they want CFO, fractional CFO services, we definitely have them meet with Ryan um, to kind of talk about what, you know, kind of direction and goal they are. And then he talks with them about frequency touch points and how long the time play is going to be on those pieces. So um, from the get go on the CFO side, you'll get a chance to actually meet with one of those CFOs and and talk about the outcome and talk about the results and talk about the goals and expectations from it, because that's really a part I think that's on the, on the fractional CFO side that sets apart us from some of the other people too, is when we actually do the phone call with you, we're not, you know, we're not diving in and, and going through just an Excel sheet with you. It's a, here's my analysis. Here's my thought process. How are things going with how, what we talked about last month? I mean, it is truly a conversation about where you've been, what you're doing, where you're going, what the financials are showing, how that's meeting towards those objectives and, and expectations. Like it is truly a collaborative conversation based off of the reporting that they did on the back end and based off the context that they have. And so I think that really drives home to a lot of those clients that buy it of like, that's, that's value. That's true value and in discussion instead of just saying, cool, you got me Excel sheet. Let's go line by line down through it and see how we're doing like a budget or anything like that. Collaborative conversation. I like that. That might be the title of this episode. Mm, I like it. Yeah. So it's a relationship. Your personnel is your product in, the, in that case. And yeah, the only way to determine what that personnel can do is to fractionalize their time and divvy up, divvy it up amongst clients, right? 100%. Like if, that's, if that's what you're selling and you're selling a relationship, then how do you determine? So now I guess now it's turning into a question here. I was just making a statement. How do you determine capacity at the firm? Ooh, so we do ours based off of revenue support right now. So we we have general targets of revenue that you support um, based off of kind of similar to CPA firm structure of three to four X of what you make to what you should support from that perspective. Um, but that also goes back to the same concept of if we have one person who's extremely efficient in what they do and brings high value to their client and satisfaction and does it in less time than someone else, they reap the reward from it in that process. And so it creates that, you know, the kind of urgency and development for everybody to push towards that. But um, yeah, it's all based off revenue support. That's a, it's all based off a factor and percentage of that. Mm, I like it. I like it. So let's go back to the forecasting. Mm -hmm. You didn't mention a tool there. What are you guys doing for yeah. that? Yeah. So we do, for our clients that we do basic forecasting for, like really simplistic basic forecasting, we do that with Cashflow Tool. Uh, works really well for us in that space. It uh, allows us to be able to give the client dashboard view and everything else like that. But for our other clients, because we build so many different variable scenarios based off the conversation and development, it's it really is done in Excel. I know everybody hates to say that and use it, but it's pretty common, I think, in the CFO space to because they're more comfortable in it. They're more comfortable with the ebb and twice. flows of it. So you don't got to tell me twice. I just had a call with the FPNA guy, and he said the majority majority of like I, I forgot what the percentage was, maybe like seventy percent of the market is on Excel like that. I think that's the low. Tool. <laughs> it might be, yeah, it might be, it might be higher. It might be higher. Um, yeah. I was looking for my notes and now I don't want to flip through my notes, but it was just on Monday, like the other day, like it was that episode will come out before this. So for all listeners, that's, that is like the tool. Like it's not like you don't have to shy away from that. He did, he did like, there is, a huge, huge opportunity in that market. And there's like $600 billion that was put into that market for tools and just 
you know, crazy amounts of VC money, PE going into, and just new tools popping up at least, you know, once or twice a week Yeah. in that, in that market. So it's, it's kind of like, I think we're still in the phase of the cream rising to the top too. Like we're not, we're not seeing it as much. We're not seeing, getting that bombardment of tools in the accounting space because not all of them focus on the accounting channel. Accountants, generally speaking, are looking back and codifying what's already happened. Yeah. That's, that's how I describe my firm. And I think it's the case with most of them. So there's not as much of an opportunity to sell to them. There is tools that have been selling to us for a little while now. Like we, we have ones that are focused on the, their account channel and they could be doing well, but they have a low adoption rate because most accountants, they like the idea of it and then they get into it and the tool is sold to them and then they don't know what to do or they're not comfortable with the unknowns. How do you hire people to do this type of work? And tell me about your margins in that because I had trouble with it. With my accountants, I thought, yeah, this is pretty straightforward. I mean, you could, you guys could do this. And they, they get it, they get the concept, but then when it comes to actually doing something that is unknown and there's a future that you have to actually be comfortable with not knowing the answer, everybody freezes up on my team. Like they yeah. can't, like, it's just very uncomfortable for them. Yet they're very comfortable doing the accounting, the books and the taxes. So tell me a little bit about that. I, I think that's, before I kind of answer where we do, where we hire from that side of things, I think that's part of just the the way that people are taught. I mean, when we go back to the way that you were taught in your undergrad, how to do accounting, it was Excel. Key accounts were on paper, but it was Excel based. It was formula driven from that perspective. And I think that's the part that becomes really difficult with apps that aren't plug and play or aren't simplistic to use like Excel is. Um, they're just too cumbersome. And until, unless you can get your entire team to invest into the ideology behind it and the training and the coaching and the development with it, which comes from the firm, the firm has to be the person who's deciding the value driven piece from it. Um, you can never get people to, con you know, to actively choose to go with that. I mean, we've, we've used a FP&A solution for several years now, and we were all excited about it when we began with negotiate a really good rate, got, you know, dove into it, built some templates, then no one updated the, the reporting measures or the KPIs that go along with it because it was something they just did at month end. So there was no reason to learn it like they learn QuickBooks or learn it like they use Excel every single day because mm -hmm. it was once a month for 20 minutes. So why would I spend six, 10 hours trying to learn how to use the damn tool to be able to, to work, you know? And so I think mm -hmm. that's, that's part of that context for a lot of people. But when it comes to, to hiring people in that space, I'll say this. I mean, honestly, right now we're looking at some more development functions for our close process, trying to get it more operational, more functional. And we had to actually sit down as a team. And it was me sitting down with someone who's been with me for a really long time, as well as our director of accounting services and say, what are the 10 outcomes or the five outcomes that we need from this? Like, sure, I'm excited about flashy stuff. And I know some of you are too, but like, what is it that I need out of this? And can it actually deliver it? Because if it can't, let's not waste our team's time. Mm -hmm. And if it's too complicated, let's not waste our team's time because we don't want to invest years of experience of people's time trying to make something work that's not actually going to make a more deliverable product. So when it comes to us for, for hiring and recruiting people, though, in that space, a lot of it comes to their knowledge and capabilities and their eagerness to learn and develop, but also that back end space of what do they have? What do they create? What are they willing to do to go through that process in themselves? And do they have that personal drive to, to meet the organizational object objectives as well as push us beyond where we're currently at as well. So tools aside, the person that is a different breed that you're hiring. And typically, again, this is a higher value service. Clients are paying more for this. You're, I, I assume that you're paying a lot more for your CFOs that work versus accountants, or are you taking traditional accountants and putting them in that situation and are they comfortable? Our CFOs are definitely a whole step of, above everything else. I mean, they the, the conversation and concepts that we go through with them are dramatically different. I mean, truthfully, our CFOs do not know QuickBooks at all. I don't want them to. Like, I want them to honestly, like, 
I would actually rather them know Excel. Know <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I need them to export, export it to Excel and do whatever you need to do with it. But to me, when it comes to our CFOs, it's conversation. Tell me about how you have conversations. Tell me about what you've helped people develop with, you know, talk me through your discussions regarding, um, you know, how you deal with someone who's dealing with an acquisition or, you know, how you have a conversation with someone when you're trying to evaluate what their financial or strategic goals are. I mean, to me, that in that role is much more important than what can they do with bill.com. I mean, hell, like they, my, one of my partners has used his Divi card once. He doesn't need it. Doesn't care. He used it once to renew his CPA license. That was it. Like it's not a part of his life and it doesn't need to be a part of his life because he's honestly, he's way more billable doing something else because he provides more value in the other area. So do you have, are they CPAs that are the CFOs? Because I, I traditionally, like I've never, not never, but most of the good CFOs, not even CPAs. Yeah. Most of them had experience in, in public or private sector building and developing organizations and have some sort of fractional, you know, or done CFO work in some space. Mm-hmm. Um, my partner just happens to be a, CP, a CPA, but to your point, he's a different breed. He's a different thought process and how he yep. does things. Um, the other fractional CFO that we have on our team is got like 45, 50 years of experience and he's brilliant. Clients love working and talking with him because he has so much exposure to the space. Um, but I've seen people who are young that can do the exact same thing because they've invested the time into their craft to learn and figure out how to have that deeper conversation or how to get to that result that the client's looking for. But usually they're people with a lot more experience. Yep. So let's um, do a little pivot again. Tell me about the role of like your, your management team, I guess, is the partners you've got. You said COO, CFO, CEO. Mm-hmm. Tell me, do you guys use any system like EOS or anything? Or we start we we started try to to instill EOS this year. So we're our first year into it, going through it. We've done. Um, it's been good for us. Like it's helped us to kind of centralize and rein in because the three of us partners usually kind of go off on our own and focus on our direct areas that we influence. So this has pulled us together to force into a more developed, you know, ideology for the company as a whole, which has been great. We do have a director of accounting services. So she works directly under me who manages the holistic outflow of the product that that we provide. We have a director of bookkeeping. So she manages all of our bookkeepers and services from that standpoint as well. And so those two work heavily together to make sure that the product is at the expectation that we have and that the, the team has knows and is trained in all the concepts and spaces that they need. And then we have, uh, our sales, our sales agent is a part of it as well. So we have a, a customer service more of a sales sales manager that is a part of our management team as well. She's a part of the development of what we do because she's the one that talks to clients in a lot of cases. Does, is it Ryan or Eddie? Which one is the CEO? Eddie. Eddie. Okay. So Eddie, you said he does sales too, though. Yeah. So he has an assistant that, or the sales manager works with him. They work together to, uh, to dive. And she, so she does a lot of the front end work and then a lot of the proposal building and creation and context from that standpoint, as well as manages our upgrades internally. So works with the accounting team to, to deliver those to the clients. Sounds very similar to what we were doing. Our CSS is that sales agent and I was working together with them and now I've kind of like gotten out of sales too, <laughs> phasing myself out of all altogether. And I'm trying to figure out what is this visionary role? Cause you know, in EOS, you got the visionary, you got the integrator, you got, you know, your accountability chart. So, and this isn't an EOS episode, but I'm still trying to, what's my role in the firm as visionary, right? So CEO, what's Eddie's role? So, so his role, what he does primarily for us is focus on the sales and the marketing side of pieces, but also helps us to keep focused on those goals that we talk about in EOS. I mean, that really is a big part of his role. And when we talk about goals and objectives and things that we're working towards, he does the, he manages the meetings and he sets the expectations for people on when they don't meet the obligations of what they're supposed to do, how to measure and work through it. Some of the biggest focus we have right now is 
presenting our story correctly. You know, and I think this is something that also as firms grow rapidly, sometimes your story gets mixed and changed from what's listed on your website to what the sales agent says to what the accounting team provides as a service or the deliverable. And so that's one of the big focuses he has right now is to get that aligned to make sure that the service we can provide is something the team that he can communicate correctly and making sure that language and context is, is clear all the way across the board. Let's talk a little bit about diversity. Right. So you and I are both white males. Yep. You're three chiefs of, of chiefs, like your C's, all white males. Mm-hmm. So what do we do about this? And in, in a world that's, especially in the accounting world, the top is filled with a lot of white males and I've done my best, but still my three people on my management team, white males like how do we address diversity when we tend to hire ourselves <laughs> in a lot of ways like i i don't i don't ever intend to set out to do what i do and I, like i try to be intentional about everything i do but the it always seems to work out that it's like you hire a reflection of yourself in some ways and it's more comfortable i don't know like what what can we say about that we we don't have business to really talk about yeah. it but we do because this is you know well, we've had this conversation before. That's why yeah. I brought it up. Yeah, no, but I think it's an important concept for us to to understand and know, though. I mean, it's it's not something you can ignore in this space that we're in, because to your point, like the stereotypical accountant is a white male. And mm-hmm. I mean, to boot, I'm bald. So I even add to that context, you know, with that space. But I think it's part of it is, is us being aware and and forcing ourselves to be more cognizant of the people that are doing things that we work with or how we interview and the types of context that we go along with it. I mean, the two, the people that were directly report to me that are still a part of our management team are all female and they are truly some of the most brilliant people that I've ever worked with. I mean, and I trust them with everything. I mean, and I'll say that truthfully. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for a really long time. It wasn't until I got this team, that I was comfortable letting things go out of my out of my out of my world, that or out of my grips, you could say. And part of it was, I think, me recognize needing to recognize like someone else conceptually can do something different than me, and different viewpoints, different concepts, different ideologies, and we disagree all the time, which is good. But also at the same point in time, too, the the confidence and trust that they bring is is a part of it. But I think awareness awareness is one of the biggest parts that we have to be we have to be cognizant of. I mean. And I think that's going back to, and this is just for me in my own space. I mean, going back to, to my roots, I mean, I grew up in Utah, not a whole lot. There wasn't a whole lot of diversity 30 years ago in Utah. It was just a Still whole lot probably of, isn't. there's not a ton. No. I mean, we have, we'd have different cultural, you know, influences that are coming in and changing, but it's not anything like, you know, most other, you know, places in the world. And so I think us choosing to be more cognizant of it and providing opportunities and being aware is, is crucial to it. And, and I fail plenty of times and I've failed plenty of times over the years in that same process. I talked about this actually on a, on an episode with uh, Laurel and Wilson with her podcast where I was like, I missed out on probably one of the, one of my favorite employees that I worked with to, to promote her into a management role because I was blind to all the things that she was providing for us. And it wasn't just because she was a female. It was just because to your point, like I was focused on other things and it didn't, I didn't think outside this framework. And finally, when I realized I promoted her, she made massive change for us in three months. And then she took another job and it, it broke me. It was terrible. Like, and so I think that's, I think that's just the biggest part is you have to, you have to be cognizant. You really do. You have to try to think outside of that, that framework, but also, not necessarily also just going to look for it. Like, oh my gosh, like I have to have someone who's not like me. Well, what if that person's great? What if that person's similar to you, but has still some other great things? Like, but you just have to be aware. Yeah. And I don't mean like you in a personality sense too. Like, I think that you always have to hire complimentary people and there's a whole other conversation to be had there on how to figure that out and how to determine that. Don't think we have that time for that today, (laughs) but there's, you know, there's more of a awareness, right? Like you said, awareness and, you know, choosing to be more cognizant and then learning 
from what we've done wrong or unknowingly. There's a unconfirmed biases and there's things that we do. And Naya brought this up on her episode. You know, there's we just there's a lot of things that we're not totally not aware of. And you know, I think it's just like the general mood is talk about it but don't do anything. I see that a lot where everybody's happy to talk about it, but they don't actually do anything. There are people that are making an effort to do things, but you know, as even in my case, as much as I try to hire diverse, I always end up with the same type of people. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes it works out for a little while longer, but usually it's just everybody kind of finds their own way. Yeah. No, I I think that was I mean, I had a conversation with Nio probably two or three years ago. And part of it was just me being oblivious to, yeah. to things. And she was just kind of like, you don't really understand what it's like for people to grow up in this yeah. space. And she and I had that honest conversation. I was like, holy crap, like I really don't. Like I didn't grow up in any of that cultural environment that you did or that your friends have or anything like that. And it was, it goes back to that point. Like you have to be willing to to sometimes open the mind process to be able to be like, Oh, someone maybe to your comment, I mean, they have to be complimentary. I don't think they have to be the same to certain extents, but they have to be complimentary to your goals and objectives. And sometimes it's good to have someone who's a little polar to the way the organ, the way the organization has always been, because that honestly, it sometimes can create massive change. And I'll say it from, from the, from the, the team that I have right now, all, all three of them, are massively more organized and structurally sound than me and my partners are. I mean, we're still good at what we do, but we kind of get lost at times and we kind of get stuck in our ways and our systems. And that's why we probably came together so easily because we were so complimentary. But the moment that we put the three of them in the roles they're in, our world has changed dramatically and it's been far for the better. But we also had to be comfortable letting go of some aspects of things to be able to, to take that step up. And, and all three of those women come from very different degrees and backgrounds, but it's, it's forced us to have to understand that they can be complimentary without being the same. Yeah. Complimentary without being the same. Oh, a lot of, a lot of good nuggets here. Collaborative, complimentary conversations. All the C's. I know. I'm on a C kick now. I don't know why it happens a lot in a lot of episodes. It's just a lot of good C words. Definitely. So. Very much. The big so. C, the big C. All right, Dan. I, I am so happy that we finally got you on. This Definitely. Is, this is great. Is there anything else we should share? First, if anybody does want to check out Laurelin's good, bad and ugly podcast, the first episode is Dan and it's good. It was a good episode. I, I listened to it on the plane one day and uh, i was excited to have you on too oh appreciate it no uh, no it's uh when she i, I actually love that topic because i was actually talking to one of my uh team members i about forgot that the topic today. what was it about it the team was, or about hiring or something? it was about it was about what you've what missteps you've made in your firm over your career like yeah. we just talked about error and and her whole point with it was is we spend too much time talking about the good things everybody does and we don't learn from failure and yep. so we spent the whole time talking about where I failed and how it helped me to change and where I was more aware in other areas. And um, I loved the conversation because I think that's as accountants and especially as you know, firm owners or people who are in accounting practice moving forward, like your error, your failure is not a bad thing. It's just recognition that something didn't go right. Great. Now let's fix it. Let's make it right the next time. And how can we be, you know, to learn from it, to be able to make mm -hmm. it so we don't do it again. And so um, but I was just talking with one of my, uh, my teammates about that a little bit earlier today too. And she's just like, I love hearing about lack of success people have. She goes, it feels yeah. weird to like it, but it's, it's inspiring. It makes time. you feel better about yourself and what you've done too, because when you just hear all the good that people have done, it makes you feel inadequate in some ways. Like how come 100%. I can't be that good? Cause you're not hearing, you're missing the whole story. You're missing how many times they screwed something up to get to where they were at. And I love that. I forgot. I totally forgot that that's like how she leads with. And that's so great. And I try to ask that too. And I try to be a little bit more like, you know, flowing about it. Like I, I don't, I don't ever really want to lead with that. Cause then people sometimes don't have anything good. Like I've <laughs> yeah. asked that question before and then they come up with like <laughs> bad things that have happened. It's just like, 
Oh, that's we bought blue pencils it. or blue pens instead of black, and it just totally ruined it. Yeah, no. I had an argument because I wanted somebody to pay me less, not more. Yeah, like things like that. It was just cool. Nah, she did well, a great job. Yeah. All right, Dan. Cool. Well, appreciate it. Next time we'll uh, we'll go deeper into some of these other things. I'm gonna have. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. No, that's great. Nope. I appreciate it. How can our guests find you if they want to see you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, just at Dan Luthy. Nice and simple, nice and easy. Last name. Oh, you w. got your full name too, right? Yep. All yeah, full me name. too. At, so nice. At, yeah. It's, it is, right? You, know, you don't have to add the numbers. You don't have to do underscores or things like that. Definitely. Nothing crazy. All right, Dan. Cool. Check out Dan Luthy out on uh, Twitter. He's on LinkedIn too, I'm sure. Definitely. Same thing. Peace out. Peace out. Peace out.